I'm Steve Fisher. There are anywhere from 10,000 to 18,000 species of birds on planet Earth. Peter Cavanaugh's mission is to photograph all who flap their wings to document their beauty, their mystery, and their mechanics of flight. He's taken hundreds of thousands of photos since 2008, and he's here to talk about it on Life Slices. We're here with Peter Cavanaugh today. Peter, give us a bird's eye view of who Peter Cavanaugh is. Well, a bird's eye is quite appropriate there um, because uh, I'm a bird photographer and I am the author of a, a book called 100 Flying Birds that came out uh, uh, just before the end of the year. And uh, I concentrate on photographing birds that are flying and I have let that passion take me around the world and I have photographed the flight of birds in every continent and continue to do so. So that is what uh, what drives me. When were you first attracted to birds as a subject? I actually have a professional background in the mechanics of movement. So uh, I have been a professor at a number of universities, and um, including Penn State, the Cleveland Clinic, the University of Washington. And I also am an instrument-rated private pilot. And so I have studied both the mechanics of movement and I have also studied uh, the aerodynamics of flight. I have always loved the outdoors and I've been taking pictures since I was a very small boy. So this really all came together for me in terms of photographing flying birds. It seemed like a, a natural thing to do based on those elements in my background. When did you start? Um, about uh, when I first came to the Pacific Northwest, which was in 2008. What is it about birds that fascinates you? Well, I think birds are like a gateway drug into the environment. You know, birds are messengers to us of the state of the environment. Once you understand birds, the way they live, the way they feed, the way they breed, the way they migrate, you are inextricably drawn into all other aspects of the environmental matrix. As the famous a biologist Rachel Carson once said, nothing in nature happens alone. Everything is an interconnected web. And so by, by understanding birds, you necessarily have to understand other things. But my personal fascination for birds is really because they are the only uh, seriously f uh, flying class of animals. I mean, there are other squirrels that glide, fish that have brief airborne periods, but it is their flight. And that's what I think is the, the essence of birdness. It's that they're able to fly from place to place. And it, it's done many things for their survival over the years. It, for example, allows them to escape predators, it allows them to extend their feeding range, and it enables them to migrate to better weather. So it's not surprising that birds have done so well uh, as far as the number of species. There are almost 10,000 species of birds, 10,000 different kinds of birds. Uh, they live on every continent. They travel vast distances. And so they are just an altogether 
fascinating entity to study. I saw a quote from you somewhere. It was an article somewhere, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember it exactly. But you made uh, the comparison between birds and how man has tried to copy bird flight over generations, and we have failed to get it. What are we missing? Well, it's not so much that we are missing. It's that we have realized in the last probably 120 years that we can borrow from birds. Some of the early flight pioneers, uh, including the Wright brothers, but um, more notably people like Otto Lilienthal, and these people realized that if they were going to succeed in human-powered flight, they would have to understand how birds fly. The uh, The Wright brothers' debt is an interesting one. So in the early uh, 1900s, the Wright brothers were flying kites uh, at Kitty Hawk. They didn't have engines in their plane yet, and they were having a lot of trouble maintaining uh, stability and staying airborne when the winds were turbulent. And uh, there's a letter that um, Wilbur Wright wrote to another uh, pioneer of aviation where he said that he'd been watching turkey vultures and that he noticed how they warped their wings to cope with changing airflow. And very soon after that, the Wright brothers wrote a patent and, and actually had the patent approved where they had pulley and rope arrangements on the wings and they were able to warp the wings of their aircraft. And so that was probably an early example of of what has to be known as biomimicry or a bio-inspired design where an engineer or designer will look to some feature that has been successfully solved by animals over a long evolutionary period and realize that that can be added to the the topic of their design. So for other examples, um, you might know that owls are incredibly quiet flyers. They have developed that ability to take their prey by surprise. That's their secret weapon. So the way in which owls are able to minimize aerodynamic noise has been studied by aircraft designers who are looking to design quieter airplanes. Birds have a a very interesting structure right in the middle of their wings where there's actually some feathers on what is the historical thumb of the bird's hand. And they can raise those feathers, called the allular feathers, to to keep the airflow attached to the wings rather than stalling. And that is very much a feature of slots on uh, the wings of aircraft for the very same reason, to allow aircraft to go slower without stalling. So there's a lot of examples like that where biomimicry has resulted in some very positive design features on things that humans are trying to design and build. If our aircrafts could flap their wings, would that make them more efficient? Yeah, probably not. Um, the, 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 the only reason, although it has been tried, the only reason that uh, birds flap their wings is to generate thrust, propulsive thrust. And of course, we solve that problem in airplanes 
by providing uh, engines, either propeller-driven propulsion or jet engines. But it's still the fact that birds are infinitely more maneuverable than airplanes. Even we think of planes like the F-16 being very maneuverable. Well, you know, birds are infinitely more maneuverable than that. You know, they drop a wing, turn upside down, are able to fly in all sorts of different ways that aircraft cannot manage. So I, I think we still look at birds as being the, the ultimate masters of aerodynamics and flying skills. So in other words, birds are show-offs. Uh, I, I suppose you could put it like that. I have seen birds doing things in the air which actually look like having fun. You know, it had no locomotive purpose. It had no feeding purpose. They were just kind of... I remember a time I was on a cliff in Iceland and these kittiwakes were just moving along the edge of the cliff, riding the the rising air. And it looked to me like they totally were just having fun. Like a bird, like a dog sticking his head out a window and just loving exactly. the wind in his face. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yes. Talk about some of the places you've been to catch birds because I know you've gone all over the world. What are some of the more intriguing places? Well, um, obviously, Antarctica and uh, the Southern Ocean in general is incredibly uh, interesting and intriguing. Most trips to the Southern Ocean start at the Falkland Islands, which are themselves quite amazing places. Uh, for me, since I'm British, they also are a little bit like going home because I think the Falkland Islanders love the Queen more than the British do. <laughs> uh, and and after Maggie Thatcher's war in 1982-3, where there was you know conflict between Argentina and, and Britain, it's only heightened their level of patriotism. But nevertheless, they are a wonderful place to go to photograph birds mostly penguins, which don't fly, of course, uh, except, you know, they can occasionally skim over the water. But that is a wonderful place. And then from there onwards down to perhaps the island that is the ultimate destination for people who want to photograph wildlife, and that is the island of South Georgia. South Georgia is between the Falklands and Antarctica. It's um, south of the Antarctic of the Antarctic Convergence, where the Arctic Ocean meets the Southern Ocean, the Antarctic Ocean meets the Southern Ocean. And it's a, it's been made famous, of course, because it was the final destination for Ernest Shackleton um, when he rescued his crew from a boat that had sunk in the Weddell Sea. This is very topical because at this moment, there is an expedition over the place where that ship is reputed to have sunk, looking uh, for the ship. Hmm. But South Georgia has got just an astonishing number of birds and other wildlife. At any one time, on, a, on an island that's about 100 miles north to south and anywhere from zero to five miles wide, there's probably never more than 25 people and millions and millions and millions of birds. And uh, I have landed on beaches there where there's estimated to have been 100,000 penguins visible from the beach. And that's a sort of a 
life-changing experience when you realize that those animals own the land that they're on and they they live completely in isolation from human interference uh, to some degree. Of course, what's happened is that we've now started to harvest one of their major food sources rather more intensively. And that and global warming together are probably going to have a major impact on penguin populations in Antarctica. See, I always say this would be a great planet if it weren't for the humans. Yeah, I, I think we're proving that every day now. I was, in fact, I, today I have just been writing, I'm working on a new book about uh, how birds fly, and I've been writing about the, the, the five prior extinctions that there have been, mass extinctions. And of course, it's now very clear that we're in the middle of the sixth extinction, and that that sixth extinction is being driven entirely by human activity. And birds are bearing the brunt of it. You know, birds need the stopovers in wetlands. They need uh, uh, clean, unpolluted water. And these things are being are being harder to find for them now. And in fact, you know, we have lost something like 3 billion birds over the last 25 years, which is, is kind of mind-boggling that we've had such a loss of biomass in the United States. I know that you're focus when you, pardon the pun, but your focus when you're, you're shooting birds is birds in flight. What are the challenges in photographing birds in flight? Yeah, it, it is quite difficult from a number of points of view. First, uh, until recently, when cameras got lighter and more intelligent, it was basically a, a, an orthopedic challenge because you generally have a huge lens that looks like a rocket launcher. You're holding it above eye level and you're sweeping it across the sky to keep a focus point or several focus points latched onto the bird. I have paid the price for that uh, in two shoulder surgeries, which uh, I think were partly caused by this kind of uh, uh, hand-holding uh, cameras. Uh, but I'm pleased to say that things have really changed and cameras have got incredibly smart. Uh, I now own a camera that has artificial intelligence such that it will seek in the field of view and it will find the bird's eye. Not only does it find the bird's eye, it actually then tracks the bird's eye as it moves across the screen. And this has completely revolutionized the, the photographing of birds in flight. I sometimes think it's cheating compared to what I've done for the last 10 years, where, you know, I have struggled to keep a focus point on the bird. I get so many more shots now that are in focus that in any one, and of course, also I'm shooting at 30 frames a second. So from one encounter with a bird in flight, I end up with 10 to 20 photographs that are really pretty good. And it allows me to choose the posture of the bird, the background, the exposure. It allows me to select from uh, a much deeper palette of images than I ever could before. So I think things have some of the challenges have really been taken away in the last, uh, I would say, two years since cameras had this local intelligence. So with all this intelligence in cameras now, is it rendering you as the photographer obsolete? Yeah, to some extent it is. You 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 don't need to you don't need to do so much manually, but of course what that does is it leaves you more time to do the other things and get them right. Because 
when I first started taking birds in flight, I would take a picture of a bird in the sky, you know, and I'd bring it home and I'd show my wife, who happens to be an artist, and her response was generally, oh, another bird against a blue sky. Eventually, I kind of got the message. And what you want to do with an image of, of a bird or any other animal is that you want to represent it in the context of the environment that it lives in. So you want to show it against the habitat that it lives in or against the, the food that it forages for. And so getting the exposure and the focus right are really just like getting you through the door of getting a decent photograph. And then it's up to you to add the artistic parts, which are going to make it not just a photograph that records a species, but a photograph that shows a species in its biological and environmental context. Is there an, a holy grail of bird photography? Is there a particular species you have not been able to photograph or something that you're trying to capture that you haven't been able to capture yet? Well, there are certainly uh, uh, so many birds in so little time. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> and um, I, I, I would like to go to Papua New Guinea and try to get some photographs of the birds of paradise in flight. Most of the pictures you see of the birds of paradise are doing their incredible displays. And I have seen very, very few pictures of birds of paradise in flight. And so that's certainly uh, one thing that, that I would like to do. It's a difficult destination, not that safe and uh, not that developed. So uh, maybe one day uh, I shall go there. Are there some birds that are more photogenic than others? Oh, oh certainly. Um, I just came back from Colombia a couple of weeks ago, and Colombia is just an incredible place for bird photographer. First of all, Colombia has more species of birds than any other country in the world. Uh, they have 1,954 species, I think. It changes every day as the species are multiplied and divided. But they, for example, have hundreds of tanagers, small birds, about sort of blackbird-sized bird, but my gosh, they are not black, most of them. They are the most incredible palette of colors. And I must say, I never was interested in small birds before, but it's impossible to go to Colombia and see this absolutely magnificent array of tanagers without... Uh, being moved to photograph them. Uh, but on the other hand, they also have incredible birds like toucans. There are some toucans that I had never seen before, mountain toucans with multicolored bills and multicolored plumage that were really just incredible birds. So I'm, I'm still sort of high off that trip and going through the images uh, that I took there. And I'm trying to do it really slowly so I can appreciate all the birds I've seen and let it stretch out over uh, several months. Your book is called 100 Flying Birds Photographing the Mecha Mechanics of Flight. Describe yes. what you mean by photographing the mechanics of flight. What, what are you trying to capture? Yeah, so what I try to do in the book is uh, a number of things. First of all, I want to show the bird. Uh, let me tell you the format. So there are uh, 11 chapters. Each of them has nine birds. One has 10 to make the 100. And then there is 400 words of commentary about either the bird, the photograph, getting the photograph, or something about what you see in the bird in flight. And so I'm trying to point out the mechanics of flight, what the, how the bird is flying, what it's doing, how it was to get the shot, how it was to be in the place where the shot was taken, which is sometimes quite magic, like 
um, for example, one of the places of birds that are clay lake in Peru, where, where these brightly colored macaws come to, to take clay so they can get minerals from it. That's an incredible sight because what happens is that they, there might be, let's say, 50 birds on this cliff of clay. And then one of them or more of them hear some signal that they think means danger. They might hear the voice of a hawk. They might hear a change of wind. There might be nothing because they're very much on a hair trigger. And then in one moment, all those 50 birds leave the cliff in their reds and yellows and blues. And then they're gone and they might be gone for the day because uh, in many cases, that's it. So those are some of the kind of things I try to convey in the book. How the birds fly, what they're doing, uh, what it was like to be there, and, and what settings and techniques you need to to get pictures of flying birds like this. When you take a picture, how much of your shots are there in the original shot, and how much do you achieve through processing? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when you take a landscape shot, there is a tradition amongst landscape photographers that everything that you see in your viewfinder will be in the final print. It's it's almost a matter of honor amongst landscape photographers. They're out there. They are composing the image. They have the camera on a tripod. They're composing the image, maybe for hours, waiting for the right light, getting the framing right. Photographing flying birds is not like that at all. With flying birds, you take your opportunities in a split second. You know, the bird comes out of a tree, you see it, you take a photograph, and they're gone. You did not have time to, to, to compose the shot like a landscape photographer. Now, of course, there are many things you could do in advance. For example, you place yourself in a location where if the bird comes, you know that the background is going to be the way you want it. But for the most part, composition in uh, pictures of flying birds is done on the screen. And, and that is why having a camera like the Sony camera that I have that's got uh, 7,500 pixels wide by uh, 52 pixels tall allows me a lot of freedom in cropping. So I can have that big picture on the screen where the bird is maybe in the upper third and I can crop that picture until artistically it's got a, an, an appealing composition in the screen. Every picture that I have is cropped in some way and sharpened. You know, when you shoot in RAW, which is what I do, what that means is that you're shooting an image as it comes off the sensor of the camera. When you have a point-and-shoot camera, what happens is that the camera has some algorithm in there where it, it makes the colors, it puts the colors in a scheme that it thinks you might like. Professional cameras don't do that. It shoots them raw, and it's up to you in your post-processing to take that raw image and to bring out the tones and luminances that you saw when you took the picture and how that best represent that bird. And so, yes, I spend a lot of time post-processing. How much time do you think you you take actually out shooting and processing? What's the comparison? Yeah, that's that's a hard one to say because, you know, when I'm out for a full day, I typically come back with 
two to three thousand photographs, um, probably more because I'm shooting so fast. And then I will look through them and identify and tag the ones I think are worthy of further exploration and processing. If I shoot 3,000 pictures in a day, and if I get 10 images that I really think are keepers, that's a pretty decent ratio for me. So uh, I'm, I'm happy with that. What are the mistakes most people make when photographing birds? First of all, they won't shoot or can't shoot fast enough so that there's some blurring on the image. Blurring can be very beautiful. Um, for example, I used to take, I used to try and take perfect pictures of hummingbirds using strobes at a 12 thousandths per second where the bird was absolutely frozen. But more recently, I have wanted a little blur in my images because I think that, that, that contributes to the sense of movement that you get from the picture. But nevertheless, I think that a common mistake is not to shoot fast enough so you get blur that you don't want. If you want blur, that's fine. But if you don't want blur, you've got to shoot fast. Another one is that they don't have a, a lens that gives them enough pixels on the bird. So Obviously, birds in general, uh, except in zoos, and I, I never shoot birds in captivity because I, I'm totally against uh, birds being in captivity. Um, but when you shoot birds in the wild, you obviously can't get very close to them. And so I, for example, have a 600 millimeter lens and I have a, um, an extender that can make that into a 1200 millimeter lens that brings those birds very close to me. So I think a lot of people will show you a picture that's a picture of a big landscape. And oh, by the way, there, if you look carefully, there's a bird in that picture somewhere. My style is to try and get right up front with the bird. Uh, of course, I'm not physically close to it. I'm only close to it because I have tremendous magnification in my lens. So those are a couple of the things that, that I think people do wrongly with uh, with flying birds. The other thing is that they don't think about the the canvas on which the bird is to be presented enough before they take the shot. And and I've got an example in my book of um, shooting some sandhill cranes at the wildlife refuge in New Mexico. And, and I, I show there that by just moving my position, just 50 feet along the lakeshore, I was able to put this bird against a backdrop that really complemented the colors of its plumage, rather than shooting it against a mass of trees or a tangle of trees. And so I see many photographs where there's a bird against uh, a busy, tangled backdrop that I really think does not show the bird in its best light. And that's a matter of thinking in advance. It's not anything to do with taking your chance at the bird, because even before you do that, you need to put yourself in a place that has a good chance of resulting in, in a nice image. So it's not about second-guessing the bird. That's right. If someone wants to get into bird photography, what advice would you give them? Let's talk about getting the equipment first. And, and so you can get a pretty decent body and an and a, a intermediate uh, lens, like a 100 to 400 millimeter lens. And you can probably get all of that for around, say, two to $3,000, which is a lot of money, but it's not the huge outlay that you would need if you were uh, wanting to get sort of 
pro-grade level level cameras, then I, I think it's really a good idea to go out with somebody who knows how to do this. And obviously, you've got to go to a place where there's a lot of birds. That speaks without, uh, that goes without saying. Um, and, and there are lots of these places around, fortunately, that we have dotted around us, places called National Wildlife Refuges. Now, these are pretty interesting places. They are federally funded, and they were basically federally funded to provide a habitat for birds that hunters would want to shoot. And and so what has grown up is this very interesting partnership between hunters who want to kill birds and photographers who want to get images of birds, shoot them in a different way. And so there are lots of these National Wildlife Refuges dotted around, and they are real magnets for birds. So going to a place like Squally outside of Olympia, um, for example, in Western Washington, is, is a great thing to do. And do it with somebody who knows what to look for, knows what to anticipate, and will help you in your uh, uh, if you're a beginner in in doing this is there anything about yourself or about your work or about birds that you that I have not asked about that you would like to answer i didn't mention that i also had a background of doing research for nasa over a 20 year period and so um, i have done experiments on the space shuttle and the international space station and uh, i on the ground, I have to say, I have been at mission control while the astronauts were doing the experiments. But that is another part of my background which has made me excited about flight. It's something that I think flight is really in my blood. And that's why it was just such a natural thing for me to migrate, if you'll pardon the term, towards uh, bird photography. So it, it's this combination of things in my background and interests that have led me to do what I do. Uh, I must say, um, writing this book has been a particular pleasure. It's brought me into uh, connection with many people Every almost every day, something interesting happens as a result of the book. People will contact me. I'll make new friends, new acquaintances. I do post regularly on Instagram. On, on Instagram, I am Peter Kavanagh Birds, all one word. So if any of your listeners want to keep up with what I'm doing, Instagram is a good place to do it. Instagram's the social media platform that most photographers seem to gravitate to. So Peter Kavanagh Birds is where I am. If you put birds into a rocket going into space, do you think they'd get spoiled and go, boy, this beats the heck out of flapping our wings? Well, you know, that, that, there's actually some substance to your question because there is a phenomenon in biology called secondary flightlessness. And what that is, is that various groups of birds, uh, notably the penguins, had in deep time, in an evolutionary sense, they had used to fly and they lost the ability to fly for the reasons that I mentioned earlier as to why flying was important. Uh, there is one example that I would give you, and it's a fascinating example because in the Galapagos Islands, there is a bird called a flightless cormorant. We're all familiar with cormorants. So you go to the, uh, the shore or the river and they're always there. Well, there is a bird that I am sure that Charles Darwin saw, but he didn't write about it in his log. And I, I, I don't know why he didn't, because it's a tremendous example of 
of speciation, of a new species emerging, which was where his thoughts were at this time. So this bird looks exactly like a cormorant, but it has the most pathetic wings. When it holds its wings out, it just droops a few feathers down and it does not have the ability to fly. And it, it lost the ability to fly historically because A, it didn't need to travel for food. Everything it needed was right there on the back door. The weather is the same all year round, so it doesn't need to migrate, and it doesn't have any predators. So the three imperatives for flight were no longer imperatives. And so this bird lost the ability to fly. So that's the secondary flightlessness that I, that I mentioned. So put in the right circumstances over the evolutionary timescale, birds will indeed or can indeed um, lose the ability to fly. That that explains humans. We probably could fly at some point in the past, but we lost that ability. Uh, <laughs> well, Peter, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate your taking the time. Your work is fascinating. How many photos have you taken over the course of your career? Well, I have about 30 terabytes uh, on on my drive, and I've taken probably 650,000 photographs. Were those all on memory cards, or did you do any pre-digital? I really have only saved everything from the onset of the digital age. So my history with bird photography spans only the digital age. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, much continued success and happiness. And uh, where do you travel next? So um, I'm going to the Isle of Man between England and and, uh, and Ireland in May to do a, a bird photography project there. I, I do a calendar, Isle of Man calendar every year, and it's going to be birds this year. And I'm still deciding where to go um, in the fall. I may go back to the Southern Ocean or South America is a great draw for me because, as I mentioned earlier, that's where the huge diversity of birds is. So Central or South America is definitely in my plans. I'm surprised you go to the Isle of Man. I, I would expect you to look for the Isle of Birds. <laughs> Good pun. Thank you so much for being here. I totally appreciate it. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beat Dick Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. 